You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. The cause of behavior of the market, defining these structures so clearly on momentum. It's our experience that whenever a market creates a very clear momentum structure, it's for a purpose of using it as a starting gate in a new direction. And so right now we get the stock market dancing above what is a sell structure and silver and gold miners dancing just below with precision that weekly close in silver in November was penny and a half below the breakout number, below an upside breakout number. Thanks for tuning in to Mining Stock Education. I'm Bill Powers. In today's show, you will be hearing the professional insights of analyst Michael Oliver of Momentum Structural Analysis. His website is olivermsa.com. Michael, welcome back onto the program. Let's jump right in it with gold. Is there more downside risk uh, that we're seeing for gold investors currently in your thoughts? Well, our, our methodology is, is fairly unorthodox. We look at price somewhat, but we look mainly at momentum when we measure price in relation to certain moving averages, not, not overlaying them on the price chart, but oscillating the price versus where is it in relation to, let's say, the three-quarter moving average or three-month moving average. So we create charts that give us different visual images of the trend structure of what's going on, other than what price might be saying. Well, frankly, what happened in November, gold broke out to a level that we thought was significant resumption level, meaning, okay, I'm tired of this congestion zone baloney that I've been in for a year and a half now. I want to re-engage to the upside. But at the time that it broke out over a certain, we had 1825 was one of our numbers and it, it cleared it, went up to 1879. We also had a number for silver and our number for silver was 2536 weekly close. Well, if you go back and look at the peak weekly close in November, it stopped at 25344. 25, okay. <laughs> Penny and a half below our number. Didn't close above it. And then immediately dropped. So silver did not validate what gold had indicated on the same metric, the three-quarter moving average situation. Nor did, for instance, GDX. We had a number for GDX at 3590 plus. It stopped at 3508 and pulled back. Now, what's neat about those two markets, the miners and silver, in terms of re-engaging to the upside, is that those trigger numbers that they set up got so close to them on momentum and then pull back. Therefore, it's set like building a bridge, so to speak, building a structure. It's set a level that is now going to drop next quarter because those averages, three-quarter moving average, for example, in silver and GDX, is going to drop some. Why? Because we're lower than we were three quarters ago. Okay. Breakout levels on silver instead of 25.36 is now going to be around 24.40 weekly close, which if you look at a price chart, it doesn't mean anything. Why? Because we, heck, we're up in the mid-25, so mid-24s doesn't mean much. But for us, it's a major breakout. It suggests to us that if we see silver do that and see like GDX get up to 34.40, that those other components of the gold-silver complex are saying now. Now we're in agreement with gold. The question now is, though, gold pull back sharply after that seemingly false breakout, which wasn't validated by silver or the miners. So it really was a breakout that we acknowledged, but we didn't endorse. Okay. It pulled back sharply enough to where it hit some numbers a week ago that bothered us. It suggested there's the potential, and we emphasized a big question mark. We expressed some doubt, which we normally don't do, okay. uh, that gold might, might have a sharp sell-off here. If it's going to do it, it has to do it soon. In other words, you can't just have that sharp drop we had a week or two ago and then just 
start to gel. If you do, like we're doing now this week, we're gelling. That was steady, steady as a rock. You get into next week, and we still have it broken down sharply. We're not gonna, I don't think. I think gold, all gold is doing is saying, oh, I broke out prematurely. Now I'm going to wait for my sister and the miners to agree with me. And once we get into next quarter, which is what, 12 trading days away, all the numbers will shift. And we think we could get a unison type of signal from gold reasserting itself again back above certain levels. Silver, the number I gave you, it's an estimate right now, but it won't change much. And the miners all saying, OK, we're with you now. And at that point, we cross those numbers. I think the entire complex is saying what we've seen for the last since last summer's high, August high, is a lot of violent turmoil up and down. And at the worst point, gold was down 20 percent from its high. I mean, you know, think about it. It took them nine months to give it 20 percent pullback. The S&P's done that five times during its bull market and done it two months, you know. But and now gold's sort of almost in the middle of that range, just below 1800. Uh, and silver's, you know, in the lower half of the range it's been in for the last year or so, which is roughly uh, 21 and a half up to 30. So it's trading 22 and a half. Maybe it'll be 23, 24 years shortly. So we think that congestion zone will end if we can cross those numbers. And it's going to be a next quarter event, which means start watching closely as we get into January for those numbers to be triggered. And if that happens, I think that whole complex wakes up again and we start to move back to where the price guys we're only looking at GDX price chart or silver price chart. We'll say, hey, it's reborn. Uh, you know, what's that going to take? Well, you can look at a silver chart, go back to last summer, and you'll see there were a couple rally highs where it looked just at the weekly closes. And the weekly closes peaked around 28, around 28. You get back above 28, I think the price guys are going to start to wake up and say, oh, it's born again. We think it's born again somewhere just in the mid-24s. So anyway, we're watching very carefully. Um, that's what we think is going on there. Michael, I interviewed you first earlier this year was my first interview with you. And you said at that time, and you said on other shows as well, that we could see $8,000 gold by the end of next year and maybe $200 silver. Is that still within the realm of possibility or have you adjusted that? No, I've not adjusted it. If we reemerge here, I'm, what I'm looking at are those trigger numbers. If we engage those quarterly momentum trigger numbers. It tells me that this congestion zone was in fact a congestion zone. It was not a top. And that all these metals and the miners are going to be reborn and move up out of these congestion zones. When we made the statement about $8,000 gold, it really wasn't outlandish. If you go back and look at the prior three bull markets in gold and measure each of the bull markets from the bear market low that preceded the bull market, there were roughly eight fold moves, early 70s to mid 70s, uh, 76 low to 1980 high, uh, 2002 to 2011, sort of like eight fold moves. Well, our last bear market low was 1,046. All we've done is double so far. If you go up eight bull, it'd be $8,000. And that's just replicating the logarithmic scale of the prior three bull trends. But we think there's bigger things going on out there. And I suspect most of your, your listeners would tend to agree. Bigger things, meaning bigger compounded errors in the system generated by central bank policy that's been ongoing this time for more than a dozen years, where they've rammed rates into the cost of money. They've priced the cost of the main commodity asset in the world, money that which people interrelate with, off the page. It's just like pricing steak at zero. Okay, everybody gets free steaks, okay? Well, anyway, um, when you price money below reality and you do it for a long time, there's got to be compounded errors all over the place where businesses make decisions on assumptions based on what? Cost of money is a major factor. 
So they commit to hiring more people, building more factories on the assumption that it's going to stay this way, that somehow reality can be fixed that way. So over a dozen years, we've had this boom, biggest boom in U.S. stock market history, generated by effectively zero rates. Fed funds rates been up back up to 2% and back down near zero again for a dozen years now. And if you get a Fed fund chart, I suggest you go to St. Louis Fed on the internet and just type in Fed funds chart and take a look at it, go back 30, 40 years. And you'll see all these upwards and downwards and then overlay that on an S&P chart. And you can see whenever they depress that money rate, because we've had a bust, you know, it's always the end of a bust, they try to create another boom. They depress the money, cost of money, and the liquidity, the amount of money in the M2 charts, for example. Then the markets go back up. And the chief beneficiary and the one they want to benefit, of course, is the stock market and corporate bonds in particular, because those are vital to the economy. And so that's what they're really concerned about, is inflating, effectively inflating the price of stocks artificially with artificially low money rates and a river flow of money that now the money supply that is growing exponentially. It's not just us, it's the BOJ and it's the ECB as well. They're engaged in the same policy. In fact, they're not flinching quite as much as the Fed has argued they're going to flinch. Well, watch the stock market at this point. Over the last month or two, we've noticed a lot of violence, but it's a lot of up-down violence with not a lot of net gain, really. You go back and, for instance, the weekly close on the NASDAQ 100 last week was back around the summer highs. Okay, Dow's back below that level. Okay, So there's been a lot of violence and, and exuberance like today. Oh, the, the Omicron is not too bad and so forth and so on, as if that's what's really driving the market. Is this part of the rounded top that you're, you've spoken about? I think about? it's a violent top. And just like we measure gold and silver basis momentum, we measure the S&P and the NASDAQ 100 repeatedly week by week versus certain metrics like 40-week moving average. Not whether it's above or below it, but are there structures on that momentum chart when you measure versus the 40-week average? And sure enough, there is. There's a triple bottom. It's not at the 40-week average itself, which is similar to a 200-day, right, in, in duration. So it's not like they're going to the 200-day and holding or the 40-week, but they're holding about 4% above that level. When you look at an S&P chart, you don't see repeated lows at the same level. When you look at that momentum chart, you see three distinct lows over the last 14 months at that level. And we're dropping back toward it again recently. Now, you can't go there again. You break below that, you touch 3% over, for example, on a 40 week, you're going to blow that structure. It's like blowing up a bridge. Boom, the, the pylons drop. Okay. Then we go out to something even longer term, 36 month average, like a three year moving average. It adjusts every month. It's got a big structure. Very clear on the S&P and very clear on the NASDAQ 100. The reason we watch the NASDAQ 100 is it's the leader index. It's clearly been the leader in performance. So that's where all the, the big names are. And they're heavily weighted, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, et cetera. You know, they, have, they constitute about 50% of the NASDAQ. <laughs> and the S&P, they even constitute about 20% of it. So we watch the front end index, NASDAQ and the S&P, and we see that they're dancing violently recently within a handful of percentage points of blowing these structures. In fact, the S&P structure that I mentioned, like the 40-week, it's about 4 or 5% below the current market. And it's not far below the low we made a week ago. So they're doing a lot of dancing up here that feels good to the bulls because they keep getting bid up, but it's sort of redundant. You know, they, They're really not making aggressive new highs. They're just regaining lost ground. But this violence in price is occurring above momentum structures. But if you break them, we're pretty convinced that this violence is merely topping violence. You have not broken the numbers yet. 
because of the behavior of the market, defining these structures so clearly on momentum. It's our experience that whenever a market creates a very clear momentum structure, it's for a purpose of using it as a starting gate in a new direction. And so right now we got the stock market dancing above what is a sell structure and silver and gold miners dancing just below with precision at weekly close in silver in November, which is a penny and a half below the breakout number, below an upside breakout number. So it's interesting that they're both doing about the same thing, just below an upside level and just above a downside level for the stock market. Therefore, watch the stocks because if they start to break and likely corporate debt will follow it. It's pretty anemic. Corporate debt market, the junk bond market, is not behaving like the T-bond market. T-bond market has been firming since March, especially the last month or two, where people are buying it as an alternative, safe alternative, cash equivalent alternative to the stock market, taking some risk off the table. And you got to realize that T-bonds, if you look at their price charts, go back a year or so anyway, have been pretty much an overlay, not week to week, but in month to month, basically, of the gold. T-bonds topped their weekly peak close back in, was the last week in July of 2020. Gold peaked weekly close one week later. And both went down pretty seriously. Where did they bottom? March of this year. So gold made its lows in the 1670s and T-bonds made their lows. And they both moved up irregularly since then. Gold's now $120 off that March low. Yeah, it's laboring back and forth, but it's off that low. And so are T-bonds. So they've been moving in sync. And we suspect that will continue this year or at least much of this year. At some point, T-bonds will get into trouble. But for now, it's still behaving like gold. So watch that too. It's a sympathetic market to gold. But anyway, once these assets that the Fed wants to protect, the stock market and corporate bonds, start to show any evident weakness, you know, and I don't mean crash or anything like that, just, oops, is this thing in trouble? You know, that could create some doubt. That's going to put some pressure internally on the Fed to have to rethink the speed of their tapering, whether they need to continue and so forth, whether they need to find some new statistics out there to help them go back to their old policy, which the BOJ and the ECB have not deviated from. So got to watch those other markets because these things, if the stock market breaks this massive 12 plus year bubble, which is, you know, it's parabolic compared to any other stock market bubble in history. Silver One Resources is an exploration and development company backed by strategic investors Eric Sprott and SSR Mining. At Silver One's Candelaria Mine Project in Nevada, there is already a historic resource estimated at 127 million ounces of silver, which Silver One is developing and advancing. The company's Phoenix Silver Project, located within the Arizona Silver Belt, is an early-stage exploration project on which native silver vein fragments have been discovered near surface. One grab sample assay an astounding 14,688 ounces per ton. Yes, that's right, ounces, not grams. Silver One has tremendous exploration potential, is extremely leveraged to the price of silver, and is cashed up and poised to increase shareholder value. Silver One trades in New York under the ticker SLVRF and in Toronto under the ticker SVE. To learn more, go to silverone.com. That's silverone.com. What about commodities next year? I spoke to an analyst that is seeing mean reversion, price reversion, and deflation in commodities next year. Yeah, we got bullish on commodities basically September, October, November of last year, depending on the market. But on Bloomberg, we got, I think it was September, we got real bullish. We said it was going to be a commodity explosion. We used the word explosion. Well, it did explode. We had oil go from $40 at that time to 80 something. 
Uh, natural gas was two, three dollars with the six fifty. Uh, copper, you know, it's, all of them basically went up in unison. And what we've had over the last four or five months in the grains, in copper, oil, and now recently natural gas is a sharp pullback. And a lot of people think, oh, that's the top, you know, that's it. They're, they're deflating now. Our assessment is that's a sharp pullback within a newly born annual momentum uptrend. Because we measured the breakout in Bloomberg in most of these commodities. It wasn't just monthly or quarterly momentum. It was annual momentum. Broke out over multi-year structures. Well, usually if you have a structure that's that wide and definable, yeah, when you break out, you can pull back. That's what trends do. They have pullbacks. They're counter trend. But it doesn't negate what happened late last year in these markets. It's just a pullback in the context of what on an annual momentum basis is a pretty fresh bull market. Now, when we take it down a time scale to quarterly momentum, which is, again, not measuring versus three-year average, but a three-quarter average. When we look at oil, it's pullback, it's pullback to where? It's, it's the current three-quarter average. And now it started the firm. Natural gas didn't do that until the panic this week, based on the short-term weather outlook. It's going to be warmer than expected. Pull back to a three-quarter average and started to stall right there. Copper already did that and started to firm. Grains are starting to firm up out of the recent action, by the way. They're several months off their low and acting like they want to resume. So a lot of people are interpreting this commodity pullback as a top. I think they'll find out they're an error. Yes, it was a sharp pullback, but in the context of a bigger uptrend. And that's the way we see it right now. We don't see this as, as a top, but as a sharp pullback within an uptrend. Is there any one commodity you see as a standout within the commodity complex? We actually, we had favored natural gas and it did quite well. We got bullish at $2, 206 to be precise, when it came up off its low in 2000, mid 2000. And then we wanted, we added to it at 440 just a couple of months ago. Went up to 650, but it's now back down into the 370s. So it's below our second entry point. And while it's been a sharp break, and it's scary if you've got long too late. Like if you get long at six bucks, you, you've been hurt, you're hurt real bad. But when we look at its context, its annual momentum, even what price did on natural gas, you can look at a monthly price chart of natural gas, go back to 2012 or so. You'll see that it was $12, $14. It collapsed down into the single digits and lived in a price channel that gradually declined for six, seven, eight years, and even got it down into the ones. Like one and a half uh, summer a year ago, off the page cheap for a long period of time, swinging up, down, up, down, but in a declining pattern. Well, the recent surge not only broke annual momentum out, it blew through this massive parallel price channel. And basically, if you close out this month anywhere around four bucks, you're just sitting on top of the channel. So that was our favorite because we had a swing objective of nine bucks, and who knows, we may still see it. We got to be cautious. It's at a sharp pullback, uh, but it's only marginally below our second entry point. So we're watching the more near-term action now to see if it reasserts itself. But it's pulled back to the same level on a relative basis that oil did, three-quarter moving average, which Bloomberg's going to see when it opens January because three-quarter average is coming up to its current price. So it'll more or less kiss that rising average. And we think at that point, we'll start to see this pullback in commodities start to spin its wheels and go the other way, back up. Um, Natural gas, still probably our favorite, assuming it behaves well over the next month or so, meaning firms back up a bit. We still, in the long run, favor gold and silver over the commodity complex. And this was true back in the late 70s. Commodities did explode. They lagged gold by a year or so. Gold made a bear low in 2006 in the summer. 
commodities didn't make their, their last low till late 2019, excuse me, 1976. Gold pullback low. Commodities didn't make their last pullback low till late 1977. Then they re-engaged with gold. But if you measure that bull trend that lasted to 1980, gold still beat them. And of course, silver beat them big time, for simple And we think that will reassert itself again. Again, there's sort of a fundamental macro argument here, but it's validated by the long-term technicals, we think. If that stock market starts to break, it's so vulnerable to a large percentage drop. It doesn't have to crash, but I'm talking about a large percentage bear market. It'll make 2000, 2002, and 2007 to 2009 look like a joke in terms of the dimensionality. Same is true with corporate debt. If those two markets are perceived as being vulnerable again, the Fed knows that pension funds around the country, especially state pension funds, are in dire straits. There's a Wall Street Journal article on them a couple of weeks ago about how they're the worst condition they've been in for quite a few years in terms of the ability to pay. Why they've been forced into buying higher risk assets than they used to buy. They provide yield because the Fed's denied them yield. And so they bought high yield corporate debt. They've shifted more into the stock market than they might otherwise have done in prior years to get better return. If those things turn against them, then you have a pension fund crisis. And the Fed is fully aware of that. Uh, so, do you believe that, in the fourth, fourth turning, Michael? Like what were you, you're describing? There's going to be societal upheaval like we haven't seen in quite a while. I think it'll have social impact as well. Yeah. Uh, in fact, a year ago, we put out a, a, what seemed like a ludicrous report where we got off technicals for a bit and said, over the next year or so, don't be surprised by certain events. And we still think some of these will happen. Uh, one of them was the abolition of student loans. Okay, we know they've been talking about that. And probably if you get into a, a stock market decline and you know, where a lot, of, a lot of young people have invested in this lately, you know, and they'll be sorry they did if it turns down, uh, you're going to have a problem, in which case that'll, be, that'll occur. That's not a big shock. We know there's political receptivity for that. Another one was secession. Okay. Now, most of us, you know, in high school, we, we learned about that because of the Civil War. But suddenly, uh, the last, last was a couple of weeks ago, Senator from Texas mentioned that term seriously. He said, if you know, we don't get our way and, and Biden's trend continues, you know, and we don't win the off-year elections, secession might be a serious consideration. They said that in January of this year, too, uh, when and, Texas uh, sued. It, it's that kind of you talk about social nervousness and, and violence or at least untoward events. OK, unexpected. Don't be surprised because we get into the next economic swirly created by the biggest bubble in history. If you get the reality side of that, namely the correction of that process, you're going to have social events, political events that it's hard to predict, you know, the landscape. Uh, and when you get into that kind of doubt here, there, everywhere, not just markets, uh, it creates more market debt. And also the central banks have really nothing else to do. They only have one game to play. The question is how much money are they going to print? They're going to print more or less. And how low do they keep rates below reality in order to save things? They don't have any other intellectual games. That's all they're about. And they've always been there for the one percenters, corporations, et cetera, in maintaining the stock market uh, as best they can. And we all know in history that once those bubbles that they create break, they never really could stop them. They couldn't stop the 2008 one. They couldn't stop the 2001 to 2002. They tried. They couldn't. Reality took over. 
if those events start to unfold, it's deuces wild on gold and silver because it's going to be deuces wild for all the CBs around the world. And does this spell the end of America as we know it? Well, end of something as we know it. And, and usually giving birth to new things is painful, but it usually yields good because error is replaced by more solid ideas. And I strongly suspect if we enter that type of environment where monetary policy, which is the only alternative the states have, that's big S, not, not the little states, the big states. Uh, if they use that, which they have to, they have no other choice then it's the degradation of the money units around the world, not just here. Don't just look at the dollar versus the euro. That, that doesn't really matter. All those currencies are degrading in real value because the quantity is growing par you know, parabolically. Uh, their relative value to one another isn't the issue. It's the total implosion of major currency units. Uh, and, and if you put them in, in pressure again with these events that we're talking about, market events, it's not gonna quit. They have no choice. And gold knows that, uh, and we shall see. But anyway, we, we go back to our normal metrics and our weekly and daily reports. Uh, based on that, we, we try to blank out that, what we were discussing, because we don't want to be overwhelmed by fundamentals. But those things are real, and we think there's technicals that can tell you when those things are going to start to expose themselves. And, and Michael, I'll plug your newsletter. Uh, you wrote a newsletter on coffee, I think it was late February, early March of this year. And you told me, I think even in our first interview, you're like, watch J.O., which I didn't even follow that ETF. And that thing about doubled since you put out that call for your subscribers. Meanwhile, I'm buying all these junior miners and I'm down 50% in the last six to nine months. I said to myself, I should have just bought J.O., some ETF I didn't even follow a coffee. But those are the type of insights that you give your subscribers, isn't it? We, we look at various markets. Now, admittedly, that's not a core market. It is part of the Bloomberg Commodity Index. Uh, by the way, lumber is not. A lot of people look at lumber up, down, you know, it's at a vital week. One, I think it was one week off the high. It was 1,700. We said, this looks like the top. Sure enough, it dropped to 700. Took it for a while. We don't focus on those intently. Uh, our primary focus is, again, on the stock market, the debt markets. And in the commodity arena, it's on energy, grains, but especially gold and silver. Hey, but a nice idea that gets you 100% gain in six months, that's not bad every now and then well, too, right? <laughs> well, we don't like, we haven't liked the stock market for a while. And people look and say, well, well, you missed something. Yeah, we did. But we also suggested last year, 12, 13 months ago, you buy fertilizer stocks, they've tripled. Buy certain subsectors of the oil sector, like XOP and OIH, the ETFs within the oil industry, they doubled. They pulled back some, but they still doubled. Uh, and they did it easily. We think they have more to go. Uh, so there are a lot of commodity-related sectors that we, we like. So we do like stocks. And we're going to especially like gold stocks when we cross that quarterly number on GDX. We also have a comparable number on the XAU index, which is will echo what GDX does. So we're not just looking at GDX. Uh, but within, we, we've had a gold report as well, a gold silver mining subscription, which is less expensive and less frequent, but once a week. The other report that's all assets is about every day. Uh, and it's best we suggest to people, yeah, go for the gold silver mining if you just want that. But you got to be aware of these other markets because they impact gold in a huge way and, and more so than they ever have in history. They will, will do soon. Uh, but within the gold sector, one thing we look at in, among the miners is relative performance. It's not just, you know, how is this stock look on a price chart or, or its net trend with its momentum structures and so forth. But how is it performing on a spread basis versus all the other gold miners or silver miners? And we measure that via spreads, where we measure, let's say, New Mountain Mining divided into the GDX. It's a certain percent. We plot that. 
And then we run a momentum study of that spread as well. And what we try to do within the mining sector is call through all the symbols and pick out the ones that we think are outperformers. And by outperformer, it doesn't mean it's always going up. It just means it's outperforming. So in an uptrend, an outperforming symbol within the sector will beat GDX. And when GDX pulls back, hopefully that outperformer will go down less than GDX. And so net on balance, if you're like invested in various gold miners, you want to be invested in the ones that are likely to outperform over the next year or so. And also be aware that in any protracted trend, an outperformer this year might not be an outperformer next year. This is true with all stock sectors. You know, it's not always the Microsoft that's leading. It might be replaced by some other symbol, you know, within the tech sector. Uh, so it's a constant process of evaluating which symbols are outperforming the, the ETFs and the index and which aren't. And those things change over time. And hopefully we, we come up with a net result that betters the performance of GDX in the long run. Excellent. Well, we'll leave it at that. Your website is Oliver MSA. Go there to find out more about Michael's subscription service. In the meantime, until we speak again, Michael, uh, just have a great Christmas season and I'll probably be talking to you in the new year. Good, Bill. Thanks. Thanks much. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts it might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-one returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own 
own thorough due diligence before investing, realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.